Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of October 16th, and this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. We'll start, as always, with the big deals of the week. Blackstone raised an additional $3.2 billion for the latest European real estate fund. KKR closed its third tech growth fund at nearly $3 billion, and Gridiron collected $2.1 billion for its buyout fund targeted at mid-sized businesses. Now we'll move on to the main stories here, starting with Harvard, which whose endowment is at risk of delivering poor returns for the second year in a row. Now, Harvard has a $50.9 billion endowment, which is managed by the Harvard Management Company, or HMC. And last year, this endowment had a $2.3 billion drop in value, which is a little less than 5%. And in this article in the Harvard Crimson, they seem to blame at least some of the lack of positive returns on the endowment's exposure to private equity and alternative assets. What do we think? I mean, they're exposed to to private assets as all these endowments are. That's the the Yale model is the one. These are the guys who invented it and all the other endowments followed suit. And uh, I think they're all very exposed to private markets. And I I don't know if that's a a cause for the loss. I mean, I think I saw they actually had a modest gain. I think it was a two point something percent gain in the value of their investments. Now they the overall value of the endowment went down because you know they do have uh, cash outflows needs from the university itself that they have to meet. But yeah, I mean the the thing that's interesting here is just uh that we don't really know how much they're actually down because there is so much private equity in their portfolio and that stuff is all marked wherever it's marked. We don't really know how much they're actually down. Yeah, well, first of all, I, you know, I think ninety nine point nine percent of schools would love to have even a two point three billion dollar endowment, which is <laughs> what you know, claims to have been down. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know. I maybe the Crimson's like running out of things to really write about. There's nothing that interesting to me in in this phenomenon. I mean, it's you know, they have some bond holdings, they have some private equity holdings. Interest rates are. You know, higher than they were. Obviously, the value of of those assets will will decrease. And you know, they've been following, as you mentioned, Jeff, this Yale endowment model, like all of their peers have. And you know, everyone's got a third of their investments in in private equity, another third in hedge funds, and you know, kind of a mixed bag in in, in the in the following third. So you know, you could probably put this article in the Cornell Daily Sun. You know, it would be it would be the same thing. It's just that our you know our well, yeah, that's called a trend, Adam. That's called a trend when you have. When you have the yeah. same thing over again, that's a trend. And see, so, yeah, I do definitely think this is an interesting trend. The the thing I find kind of noteworthy about it is the fact that folks have been calling sort of for using private markets and using p- private equity as a hedging tool for years, as a diversification tool for years, that when this is up, you know, this will be down, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of the entire basis for the endowment model in the first place, all based in Harry Markowitz and the CAPM. And, you know, you want to get as diversified as, as humanly possible is, is a big part of what that model is all about. And one thing I find now that's interesting is that there is more correlation in the traditional 60-40 portfolio, public stocks and bonds, there's more correlation than than I think sometime in the past 20 years. So I wanted to show a quick chart here of the correlation in these, you know, these sort of public markets over time. You can see that 
you know, they were negatively correlated for a long time where, you know, bonds would be up and stocks would be down. Well, that's flipped here since this sort of new rate hiking cycle has come up. Well, the correlation is also that both go down. That's been the correlation. So both go down at the same time. And so, you know, I think that, you know, if you're calling an end to the to private equity because, oh, these, you know, the endowments are underperforming these other asset classes that might be doing better. Well, you know, there's huge correlation between these asset classes too, between specifically between bonds and stocks. If you just have a typical 60-40 portfolio, like you need, we need to have this, these endowments invested in private markets to the point. Like part of this article was kind of making it seem like blaming private equity and blaming these things for them being down is that they were overweight these things. And I would say that that you need to build a portfolio that lasts through all different cycles and that this is an, a specific cycle where we have a lot of correlation between these different these other market play, market asset classes. Very good. Let's move on to our next story here. This time for what we'll discuss a piece from Ted Seides. He came up with a, a spicy piece called Navlones, Canary or the Gold Mine. And basically, he's saying that private markets are embracing nav loans to a perhaps unreasonable degree to kind of stretch and generate distributions for LPs or provide capital for new deals. And, and just as background, nav loans generally are when a private equity sponsor takes on debt at the fund level. So the, the whole portfolio is basically used as collateral or a part of the portfolio rather than just an individual company. And of course, there are useful applications of it, but there are also certain risks associated with it, as is, of course, always the case with leverage. So what do we think? Is it the canary or the gold mine? Yeah, I, I don't know if I share you know Ted's view entirely. I mean, sometimes different financing structures are just more appropriate, you know, given the assets and given the market. So it's pretty reasonable to me that if they're not an IPO window, if you know, M&A exits are, are less likely in today's market, that there are other ways you couldn't perhaps should return, you know, liquidity to your investors and, and nav loans, you know, or other types of debt like solutions may be an answer. I think I think the bigger question is, it seems like when these when these financings do happen, unfortunately, the LPs are not really involved in the decision-making process. So well, I think let's, more let's clear here. I mean, he's talking about a few different use cases. And I think some of them, I mean, I think he thinks they're all bad, but the use cases he talks about are, are, are a few reasons why you would use NAV loans. So the first is that you might use it to lower the cost of debt on a particular portfolio company that you're trying to refinance, right? So you can refinance basically a portfolio company at a lower cost of debt. And then you might be able to otherwise you can do what you're well, describing. It's like a good use of leverage. Yes, but then the key is that then you're commingling, you know, the risk, right? Because before the reason why you get an improvement in the cost of capital is because you are underwriting against your, let's say, entire portfolio, your entire fund of portfolio companies. And normally you'd be underwriting against just that one portfolio company. So now you're starting to mix up the risk between all the different, the entire investment pool. So obviously there's, I don't know, I, I don't know the theory about when one is better versus the other. Obviously it's always cheaper to do it the one way, but there's a sort of, you know, option on a basket versus basket of options difference here. The second uh, thing he talks about is what you were just mentioning, Adam, which is uh, return of capital. So if you want to return capital to your LPs, you might take out a NAV loan in order to do so. I think he mentioned that SoftBank has done that, which is always uh, uh, a little bit of a noteworthy bellwether in the first place. You should stop doing that once. <laughs> You're changing your mind. And the last one that he mentions is deal making. If you 
want to continue investing in new companies, but you can't raise a new fund or, or something like that, uh, you might do that for deal making. I mean, that one. See, I don't. I haven't really heard people doing that that much, but that seems that seems kind of like a weird uh, a, a weird decision in the first place. So, so anyways, I mean, there's a couple of different use cases he was talking about, and uh, yeah, lower cost of capital is, I guess, all, not always better, but sometimes better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't see the first two use cases as being that problematic, you know, right. especially if the LPs are on board. I think I think perhaps the bigger issue is the LPs sometimes feel like the wool's been pulled over their eyes and and they're not they don't have a view or they don't have a, a governance voice. I mean, I think the third use case. I mean, you're right. It's it's quite bizarre to kind of leverage your existing portfolio and your investors and mortgage those guys for the benefit of, I don't know, future deals or, or perhaps other investors. That does seem quite odd to me. But I, I, I you know, I think it's it's a stretch to categorically say, you know, fund level uh, debt financing is, is, you know, inappropriate financial engineering. You know, it's in, in some ways, it, it, it's a bridge loan. It, you know, let, lets you return some capital, lets you take advantage of, you know, perhaps a more depressed market when you can actually, you know, work on creating fundamental value. So, you know, anyway, I, I everything is deal specific, right? I mean, I, I, I can't sort of speak broadly or generally about this. Um, but I, I'm, I'm sure I'm positive in some circumstances, you know, this is the appropriate method for, for returning capital. I, it, you know, if, if, if people have a problem with this, you know, then, you know, we should maybe take a hard look at, you know, dividend recaps, you know, when private equity owners take over a business, put a bunch of debt on it solely for the purpose of, you know, repaying themselves and and, and giving capital back, you know, to, to their LPs in the form of a distribution. So yeah, there are criticisms of that as well. If you're criticizing that, well, then I suppose it would reason that you would criticize this, but it doesn't seem like they're getting the same, you know, the same treatment. Yeah. I mean, so in your view, Canary or Goldmine, you, it's specific to the, to the deal, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, Jeff, Canary or Goldmine? I would go with that. I mean, I don't have a, a strong enough view on this to really say. In terms of Canary, real Canary, like in terms of what he kind of mentioned to the end, that is this a, you know, a financial innovation similar to CDOs, something like that? I mean, maybe it's similar, but you know, all tools with great power comes great responsibility. Right. And the better right. tools you have, they can always be abused. And the question is whether or not this particular tool is being abused right now. And I don't really view that just from what I'm seeing. I still feel like people are being pretty prudent about the way that they're deploying and using these things. I mean, I don't think that we're going to suddenly look and say that this is the reason for some big collapse that we see coming up. I could see, though, in 10 years, <laughs> as these progress more and more, and maybe we start to get all these sort of private, unknown things commingling together, that 10 years, this could have developed to a point where this is problematic. But I mean, that's obviously way in the future. And you know, it just depends on, it's like, what do they say? Guns don't kill people, people kill people. It's, you know, financial technology doesn't cause crashes. You know, people cause cause market crashes and abuse. So that's what I would say here. Stage advice. All right. On to the next topic. Foreign direct investment and private equity are trickling back into Ukraine. Well, for obvious reasons, investment in the Ukraine experienced a bit of a drop off last year. But we have some new figures from the National Bank of Ukraine. Basically, since Russia invaded last year, foreign direct investment has made a pretty good comeback. So in Q2 of this year, so 2023, there were $1.3 billion in net inflows, which compares quite favorably to the $286 million net inflows that happened in Q2 of 2022, so a year earlier. 
it's pretty, I mean, shouldn't you expect there to be huge investment as we start to, we, everyone, all the, the circling hawks of people who want to rebuild Ukraine come in and start investing in all sorts of things to rebuild the entire economy and the entire country. I'd expect there to be huge foreign direct investment over time, like bigger than there ever was before as part of rebuilding the the country during the war and after the war. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, kudos to Ukraine. You know, I think even just broadly speaking about their economy, you know, there are forecasts that it'll grow 2% you know, in 2023, over 3% in 2024. You know, I, I think there's, you know, many Western European countries, you know, I'm looking at you, Germany and France, that'd be super happy with, you know, 2 or 3% growth. So, you know, it, it, it is a good outcome. I mean, obviously, a lot of that, I think, you know, bakes in, you know, rebuilding of the Ukrainian economy. And I agree with you, Jeff. I mean, look, I think some people are clearly taking a bet on Ukraine needing to be rebuilt. You know, I, I don't know. I don't want to speak too negatively or prophetically, but it seems to be a bit of a binary bet. I, I mean, is this war and the investments you're putting into Ukraine um, you know, existentially threatened, you know, by by Russia and the war in, in the near future. I mean, I'm not sure. Obviously, folks, you know, who are building closer to the border with Poland and Western Ukraine, uh, which is where most of the 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 investment is is flocking to, seem to think, you know, Ukraine as as a sovereign state will will be there, and these investments will be there, and and you'll have you know private investment rights over those. So I, I'm not so sure I, I I can say that so confidently, but clearly you know there are investors willing to, to to make that bet when they are investing in Ukraine here. Well, speaking of you know sort of financial engineering tools, there's this thing called war risk insurance. Okay, where usually a government you know you hope not the Ukrainian government, although in this case the Ukrainian government has not provided war risk insurance. To be honest, I don't know how you provide war risk insurance as a government involved in the war <laughs> if you are essentially existentially exposed. But I think it's because the the war risk insurance is for things like a bomb falling on the the construction site of, of whatever you're building or the business that you're running, right? So uh, it is it is a legitimate thing. But also there there's some idea of uh, Germany, France, Sweden, Japan, the UK. Uh, they've all expressed interest in coming in and providing this war risk insurance uh, as well. And these this this ensures you against all sorts of risks related to war. It's similar to there's political insurance, and it's uh, some of it is diversifiable type of risk, and some of it is more like cat risk, like catastrophe risk. That you know, obviously, if the war escalates in a way, then this insurance would would have to pay out in a big way, in a very correlated way. But yeah, I mean, there is a financial tool to try and make folks more comfortable in investing into these zones where they obviously need it. And I think it sounds like all the allies are going to you know, generally backstop these and 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 make these investments work is is the hope. And that's the thing that probably brings it to the next level in terms of people being willing to invest. So we've got 1.3 billion in per quarter here in, in foreign direct investment. How much aid has the US given to the Ukraine? It's a, know, it's it's a vast multiple of that. Plus, right? It's, it's got to be, I think there's a new ask for 60 billion, right? So I mean, cumulatively, I think this could be, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars of of, of different types of aid from just the United States, obviously much, much less coming from, from other countries. But yeah, I, I mean, this is just, you know, you're passing risk on to insurance companies, then you're ultimately passing risk on to the you know sovereign governments that might be backstopping the I mean, insurance. Look, it, it makes sense, I think, because there are some insurance companies who are pros at doing this political type of risk, this war type of risk, they're, they're pros at it. And then of course, you as a, as a company that's amazing at doing whatever you do, building things, building technology, hiring people, whatever it is, 
you don't necessarily want to figure out how to insure against all these things. And obviously it's difficult enough to operate. It's near the front lines of a war zone, but this can give you at least some comfort about certain types of risk that they're segregated out from the operating risks of the, of the business from a cash flow perspective. So, I mean, this is a piece of financial technology that definitely makes a lot of sense and obviously makes more sense when you have a government's coming in to who are kind of have a, a political incentive to want to backstop this type of thing to increase that num- that amount of aid that comes from the private sector, not just the public sector. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is, you know, th- th- this is basically a, a form of indirect aid in a way, you know, backstop private investing. And from that, from that sense, you know, I, I think it certainly does from that perspective, it certainly does make sense. Yeah, I it's, just, like, it's like the way that oh, keep going. No, I just, you know, I was going to say I, I wouldn't have much faith in, you know, private property rights, assuming, you know, yeah. a, foreign, a foreign nation here does invade, you know, the, the land. Well, that's or, the cap part. Uh, that's the that's the catastrophe part of the the risk, right? Where okay. there's some chance that just, the, you know, everything gets taken and, and it's over, right? And there's other things that are more particular. Good stuff. All right, let's move on to the next topic here. EQT is testing private stock sales as, you know, IPO markets fail to provide liquidity options. Basically what they're considering here or what they're what they're rolling out are secondary transactions or kind of tender offers but among their existing LP base. So they're they're really kind of internal transactions. I think they have over uh, 1100 LPs and they'd be able to basically transact among each other. So they're building an order book and then you know, want pe- the LPs that can sell, that want to sell rather, can sell, and those that want to get more exposure can do so as well. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously an interesting idea. I mean, just to kind of lay it out, they they talk about what they think is wrong with the traditional IPO markets. They kind of talk about they think the traditional IPO markets are dysfunctional. They think that there's not enough folks that are active capital in in these public markets. So, you know, there's hedge funds have been dwindling in terms of their AUM versus private markets, which has been increasing in AUM. And then all the other active managers and even a lot of the passive ones can't buy. And so there's very little sort of pricing discovery, they say, that goes on during an IPO. You have a few hedge funds buying, but all the, the ETFs, the, 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 the passive investors, they're not able to buy. That's They're waiting for it to join an index for pricing to settle out. And so they kind of view the IPO markets as being broken. And then on the other hand, these guys have a huge amount of assets. They have hundreds of billions of dollars in assets, thousands of the largest institutional investors in their network. They're kind of like, why can't we just build the stock market in the private markets? And you know, I, I used to work at Carta, and this is something that we basically built at Carta called Carta X, which was this stock market where it's all private investors. And the thing is, is that at Carta, we had difficulty getting it work to work. Because the founders of these companies, the folks who had control about whether or not they list on this private stock exchange, they didn't really want to have there be price discovery and have themselves you know, be uh, at the mercy of the markets, even these limited sort of markets that we put together. But in this case, I think it's different because you have EQT, who is the sponsor of all these deals, The generally the they own the entire asset. And if they want to, on behalf of their LPs, bring these assets into the light of day and put them into a mini version of the stock market, they absolutely can do so. And I think their investors will be interested in investing in those those, uh, companies that come to market. So, I mean, I don't see why this wouldn't work, to be honest, and this is as someone who's been very deep in the bowels of building this type of uh, product before. I mean, I think it'll work to some degree. I mean, this looks like a continuation, type of continuation vehicle, just, you know, without any fees on it. And, you know, continuation vehicles, however, you know, they don't fail due to fees. They they generally fail for, for a whole host of, of, of other reasons. But 
So I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm skeptical that this will be that the hit rate on this will be much more, the success rate on this will be much higher than sort of traditional continuation vehicles. But look, I, I'm in support of continuation vehicles when, when appropriate as a as a liquidity avenue. And, you know, I think this is certainly appropriate as well and an interesting thing for a large e- private equity ecosystem like EQT to try. Because really in, in any, you know, in, in sort of any transactional scenario, you know, I mean, perhaps this can focus, this can really take the form more of like a tender. There doesn't need to be some minimum threshold or minimum uptake threshold. Those who want out can can get out. Um, I think the issue with the CV is, you know, there's always some kind of, you know, minimum hurdle and, you know, many of them fail. So, you know, good on EQT for trying something different. And, you know, the hard part with this is the hard part with this, though, is to get the pricing right to figure out how the pricing mechanism works. You know, an IPO, you have an underwriter and and all this stuff that tries to well, well, hire underwriters here as well. Suppose I think that's what they were saying. Actually, yeah, they were saying yeah, they were saying yeah. that they'll get investment banks to to underwrite these, build the order book, and then yeah. and then go to market with it. I guess the thing I don't understand is how do they expect it to work going forward? You know, then is there like some sort of quarterly you know liquidity event that happens, or you just do this once every couple of years with <laughs> with each of these names and you rehire underwriter every year? It seems like probably better just to keep it rolling, in my opinion. Once you once you have it out there. And how will the underwriters underwrite? I mean, presumably they'll, you know, they'll also look at public multiples, which uh, EQT is saying are, are you know, dysfunctional perhaps to, to begin with. The whole, the whole thing is just a little bit circular to me. Look, at the end of the day, there, there are assets and they generate cash and there's a certain price that people are willing to pay for that cash today. And this seems like a, a faster, less burdensome way to allow some in, of their investors to get cash out today. And if people agree with the price or not, you know, that they have the choice to, to participate or not. I don't have high hopes for this. I don't necessarily think it'll do much better than traditional continuation vehicles do. But, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, what happens with this. To me, what I've seen in the past is it just depends on what EQT, how revolutionary they want to be with their approach to it, right? If they go and they just make a continuation vehicle, it's going to perform just like that. But if they start putting out more information and allowing for more liquidity on a regular basis, it could be transformational like we were hoping for when we built Cardex. Let's move on to our last story. CVC Capital Partners is going public. Great news and uh, great news for Europe. It's it's going to be, I think, Europe's largest IPO this year, certainly so far. So they're going public at a valuation of $10 billion, planning to raise $1 billion. IPO is in Amsterdam, and CVC currently has about 160 billion euros in AULAM. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, look, CVC is doing what all its friends are doing. You know, raise some money, <laughs> go public, start an insurance company, start a wealth management unit, you know, whatever. I, I they're, they're following a, a key trend here. You know, I think particularly in this environment, investors are looking for one-stop shops. They're increasingly dedicating money to these sort of largest PE managers or largest, you know, alternative asset managers. And, you know, going public raises capital, obviously, for, for the acquisition of an insurance unit, for example. It raises your, you know, public awareness. And, you know, there, there are certain investors in here. You know, I, I think the, the the one of the Kuwait sovereign, Kuwaiti sovereign wealth funds is in here. Blue Owl, you know, certain minority investors who also might want to cash out finally. So, I mean, there's a lot motivating this, but, you know, I, I think, you know, CBC is, is following, you know, tr- the trajectory of some of its largest, you know, competitors out there for, for the institutional LP market. It's really interesting. I remember hearing an executive from, I believe it was Aries or I'm not sure, it might have been Apollo. I can't remember saying that 
the biggest from going public, the biggest thing that they got, he felt was the notoriety of being public and the marketing and that uh, some of the biggest institutions in the world just felt like, oh, you're public. So I trust you more. And that's what he felt like the biggest deal about going public was. So, I mean, it is interesting to see all those things that what seemed to win out in the end was the most important thing was the the marketing aspect of it. And yes, it, it will now be in sort of the pantheon of the big giant public publicly listed private equity managers, which it's kind of a weird, weird sort of, you know, juxtaposition, isn't it? That it's really cool to be public and yet you operate all in private markets. We're all just trying to be cool, Jeff, you know, <laughs> and popular. Well, uh, in terms of where their value comes out, I mean, there's always a fun, you know, guessing game to play that then, you know, the moment it starts to list who, you know, who even cares anymore, it just starts to list wherever it is. But, you know, they last traded, I saw Blue Owl bought them at, I think, at a valuation of $15 billion. They bought a minority stake in 2021. And um, if we look this year where they kind of sit, like if we look at the kind of AUM to market cap ratio, KKR is about 0.12. So they have about 10x as much AUM, uh, as much AUM as their market cap is. EQT is about 0.1. Apollo is about 0.1. Blackstone's about 0.14. So it seems about 0.1 seems about where it's going to be. These guys have, I think, $170 billion in AUM. So we might see anywhere, you know, we might see some somewhere above, it seems, uh, we'll see in terms of the, the the $16 billion thing where Blue Owl bought. So I'm sure that's where Blue Owl is really pushing for is to make some sort of gain on this. And, and hopefully we'll see something even, you know, above that point one and we'll see it in $20 billion range. It'll be fun to watch how it turns out in the next couple of weeks. I mean, Blue Owl wants liquidity too, right? All, all the private asset managers want liquidity. So you might as well get liquidity out of your private, you know, investment in a private equity fund. I mean, it's 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 pretty interesting how how circular this this whole thing is. Better through an IPO than a NAV loan, right, Adam? <laughs> yeah, we're an internal, you know, tender run by EQT. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, tying it all together at the end. Perfect. We'll wrap up here. It's been another great episode of this week in private markets, and we'll see you again next week. Bye bye.